0: By the way, welcome to all of you watching us online. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, it's great that you can be able to watch online now if you're sick or uh, need to travel. You can see the service there. But after the early service this morning, uh, someone was talking with me and we were talking about how most of the time when you hear some of these controversial topics brought up in church, it's usually in the context of condemnation. It's usually in the context of here's why this is wrong, why you shouldn't do this, why you shouldn't do that. And we're going to look at this from a completely different perspective. We're going to take a step back in this series called Undivided, and we're going to talk about sort of the bigger picture framework around all these different things that we may disagree on. So our goal over the next couple of months in this Undivided series is to explore the differences of belief that we have and explain what we believe, why we believe it a little bit, and really importantly and unique to this series is what do we do? about all of those different beliefs that we have. How are we supposed to treat that? We want a strong culture of unity in this church, despite what are a lot of different beliefs about various issues. Now, when I was a kid, I grew up in a small country church where it seemed like everybody just got along. And it was wonderful until a certain group of people started to read some books by authors who had a very particular point of view about one particular topic. And this group of people in the church I grew up in decided that they would basically try to convert the rest of the church to their way of thinking. But they knew that most of the church would not agree with this, so they did it secretly. They held secret studies to try to share what they had learned and try to, try to grow their numbers. And eventually, over time, this became a really hostile and bitter situation. Maybe some of you have been through something like that, where a church you went through had a church split, And that's what we had. We had this group of people that that really became very bitter and hostile and and they even got the pastor, they convinced him to shut down a ministry that didn't align with their particular viewpoint, Uh, but it was a great ministry, should have kept on going. And so eventually the church just split. And so these are believers in Jesus Christ. um, In some cases, of course, we don't know what their heart condition really is who are against each other, working against each other, fighting against each other, and created a terrible testimony for the church in that community because everybody knew this this was the church where all that fighting was going on right now. And that's a terrible thing to say. Now you're probably wondering, what was that issue that they were fighting about? And I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Because that wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't the issue. It was a secondary issue. Probably some of you agree with it and some of you disagree with it and it doesn't matter. It's a secondary issue. What mattered was how they handled their disagreement. That was the problem. It wasn't the issue itself. It was how they handled their disagreement. So when we look at the spectrum of different beliefs in the church, what we want to do over the course of this series is talk about how do we handle these differences of belief? Because we do have differences of belief. We disagree on some things. You know, you look at the person next to you, and there are probably some things. Go ahead, look at the person next to you. Right now, look at the person next to you. Okay. All right. Now, here's the thing. Statistically speaking, there is probably something that the two of you disagree on. Did you know that? And if you're sitting next to your spouse, you go, uh-huh, we, every day. We get that. We all have differences of belief, different disagreements. And here's what we want to talk about. Here's what we want to figure out. At what point do we say, we just have to agree to disagree? We can talk about it, but we have to agree to disagree. At what point do we say, you know what? Our beliefs are different enough that you're a believer in Christ and I'm a believer in Christ, but really we need to just go to different churches because that's how different our beliefs are. And this church is going to have this set of beliefs and this church is going to have this set of beliefs. We both agree on the, the main things, but we're just going to go to different churches. At what point do we say, you know, what? your beliefs are different enough that I don't think you're a true follower of God. Because that's how far off your beliefs are. At what point do we cross that line? We talk about essentials and non-essentials. We say we want to focus on the essentials and allow for diversity in the non-essentials. But then you have a question, which is which? How do you decide what goes in the essential bucket and what goes in the non-essential bucket? Because chances are that person that you looked at a minute ago put something in the essential bucket that you don't. And maybe you put something in the essential bucket that they don't. So how do we deal with these differences of belief that we have with different people? How do we reconcile the fact that believers who follow the same God have the same Holy Spirit and read from the same book don't agree on a lot of issues? I want to pause for a minute and just bring up some of those issues right now, okay? And this is the audience interaction portion of our segment today. What are some of the issues that we disagree on as followers of God? Baptism. Baptism. Music. Politics, predestination, pre-trib, post-trib, end times, no-trib, out trib mid-trib, mill-trib, all those things. <laughs> what else? Age of, the Age of the universe. Yes, somebody from the balcony. Anybody? Communion. Communion. We've got lots of different things we disagree on. Alcohol, music style, TV shows, movies, dancing, smoking, Bible versions, gender roles at church, gender roles at home, number of genders, same-sex attraction and marriage, creation of the world, age of the universe, spiritual gifts, end times, birth control, the Sabbath, modesty, what to wear to church, piercings, tattoos. We could go on and on and on. We have lots of things. Did you know we disagreed about that much? If you're new here, please stay I know it sounds like we have a whole lot of baggage. Honestly, we do. You do too. We all get that. All of us do. How do we handle these disagreements? I want to talk first about why do we divide over these things? Why is it that we divide over these things? Number one, and this is really profound, we are people. We are human people and we have sinful natures when adam and eve rebelled against god they brought sin onto the human race and so now we are all sinners with selfishness and pride and bitterness and envy and jealousy and anger and hatred and disgust and all of those different emotions and negative feelings toward each other and that causes division and so we divide over these things we we cause friction over this but the second reason is that you and i face a very real enemy We face a very real enemy. First Peter says that he's like a roaring lion, roaming about seeking people to devour. Ephesians 6 says we need spiritual armor, including a shield of faith, to defend against the fiery darts of the evil one. One of Satan's strategies to attack you is other people. One of his strategies to attack and divide you and cause friction is not just to affect you, but to affect you by other people. It's a, it's a great strategy. It, it, it's one of those, if you can't defeat them, divide them kind of strategies. And unfortunately, he's very good at it. C.S. Lewis was a great Christian author, wrote some tremendous books. His mission was to help everyday people understand theology. So he wrote some novels that were designed to help people in a mythical setting understand theological truth that actually applies to a real world setting. And there's this book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters with a senior demon instructing a junior demon in how to tempt a human called the patient. And here's the context here. I'm gonna read an excerpt. The patient has just decided to try some churches. And the senior demon is gonna explain why that's not such a bad thing. Here's what he says. But there is one good point which both these churches have in common. They are both party churches. Now he's not talking about, woohoo party, you know, fun times. He's talking about a faction, a different group of people. They are both party churches. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion. They're in the Church of England. When neither party could possibly state the difference between more important doctrines. And all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are an admirable ground for our activities. We have quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other unessentials. He goes on to talk about how, if people actually practiced what Paul taught about these differences of belief on secondary issues, that you would expect to find believers being gracious with each other, respecting each other, instead of dividing over these issues. And then he says this And so it would have been but for our ceaseless labor. Without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. What a horrible thought, right? A church that's a positive hotbed of charity and humility. Of course, to a demon, that is a terrible thought. Here's what he's saying. If you can get them focused on their differences with each other, they'll forget who their real enemy is. If you can get them focused on how they differ from each other and divide them from each other, then they're going to lose sight of what the main thing really is. In uh, 1 Corinthians, where we're going to be studying today, Paul is going to write to this church in Corinth, but in his second letter to them, so we're in the first letter this morning, but in the second letter, Paul says this. He says, he's talking about a brother who has been causing division and wants the people to love him and be gracious to him, and he tells them to forgive him. And then he says this, so that... Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. In other words, Satan was influencing and working to cause this division and Paul is saying, yes, he did wrong, but forgive him, be gracious with him because this is a scheme of Satan to divide us. The enemy's strategy is to divide us and unfortunately it often works. Well, this is nothing new. This has been going on for a long, long time. And Paul wrote about it In many of his letters, he dealt with division in several churches, Rome, um, the church in Galatia, Colossae, and others. But the church with the divisions that seemed to concern him the most was the church in Corinth. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So open your Bibles, turn there. You can also use the Version app, find us at First Free Church under events. I want you to know the tone and the context that Paul is writing from here. So Paul, when he greets the Corinthians in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, We're going to start in verse 10, but in the first few verses, Paul talks to them in very warm, friendly tones. He greets them. He calls them God's church. He says they're people who have been made holy because of Jesus. He says he thanks God for them continually. But when we get to verse 10, where we're going to be this morning, his tone changes drastically and he's going to plead with them to stop dividing over these non-essentials. And there's a really great principle right here, just kind of hidden here. in the fact that Paul greets them warmly, says all these nice things about them. He thanks God for them continually. And then he's going to plead with them and give them some correction. And so Paul actually gives us an example of how to deal with people when there's a disagreement. It is loving, warm correction. And we tend to kind of err on either side. So we might be really, really loving and gracious and never actually confront someone on an issue that we really need to talk with them about. We may be God's instrument of growth for that person. And he wants to work through us to help them grow in a certain area. But we just wanna be loving and gracious and warm so we don't talk about it. And that's actually hurtful to that person because we saw something that maybe we should be correcting over there. Or we can go on the other side where we're all critical and all negative. And I don't mean to make it look like this side is all the critical side. I just wanted to switch around the other side of the table. We're all critical, we're all negative, And we need to have some loving graciousness get added to that. And Paul has that balance here. He corrects them with love and warmth And graciousness, but he does confront them. And here's what he says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind united in thought and purpose. Let's unpack that verse a little bit. The word that Paul uses for appeal is interesting because he could have used a command word. He could have said, I command you or I charge you. But what he says is, I appeal. It's not a command, but it's not just a suggestion either. It's a word that has some force to it, but it's more of like a pleading or a begging. It's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son. When the young son comes home, the older brother is not happy about that. He's not going to celebrate with the rest of the family. And so the father goes to the older son and says, I appeal, I plead, I beg of you, come join us. It's the same word. So Paul is pleading or begging with them to live in harmony and not divide. He calls them brothers in the original Greek, but the term is is meant to refer to all people. Brothers and sisters is a good translation. I beg of you, my family is what he's saying here. And then he throws a little bit of leverage in there. He says, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is gentle, this is loving, this is familial, but there's this authority of Jesus Christ is behind this to live in harmony with each other. One version says that all of you agree. And literally what what it says there in, in the original language is that you speak the same thing. Not just some of you, all of you. All of you should be speaking the same thing. All of you, your communication should be united in what you're talking about, not dividing. He says, let there be no divisions in the church. When we encounter different differences of belief, different divisions with other people, we react in some pretty predictable ways. There are four key ways I can think of that we react to division that maybe we need to watch out for. The first one is naivety. When we react to differences of belief with naivety, that's when we say, I don't know and I don't need to know. I'm not going to look into it. I don't care. I'm not going to study it. I'm not going to learn what I believe about this. I'm just going to go about my business. Basically, I would rather remain blissfully ignorant about this issue than actually have to think it through. Now, there are some problems with that response. First of all, some of these issues that may seem controversial and that you don't really care about, you may really need to have a position on them because you're going to have to face a choice at some point about one of those issues. That is more and more true every day. Some of the things that we were able to remain blissfully ignorant on are starting to impact us in the culture and we need to know where we stand on these things. It's not enough to just say, I don't know and I don't need to know. Some of the decisions you make, how you lead your family if you have one, how you influence those around you will be affected by these decisions. If you don't care enough to grow in your understanding of some of these issues, then you're not gonna understand where other people are coming from. And you may come across as ignorant ignorant or, or, um, and somehow belligerent with someone just because you haven't taken the time to understand what some of these controversial issues mean and where you should stand on them. One of the issues I see with naivety is that people who remain naive to some of these controversial issues have a harder time picking up on false teaching. So they're reading books or they're watching someone speak and they're not able to pick up on the flags that are there to let them know, hey, this person is not teaching solid truth because they haven't been studying. They're not aware of what some of these issues are that they need to watch out for and start to question and say, you know what? Actually, I don't think that's right what he's saying. And this is true even for good speakers. Uh, I was listening to a message this week from someone who's a phenomenal speaker, absolutely love his preaching and teaching. He's really, really solid, except for the one message that I listened to this week where I just think. He completely goes out of, out of context and just took the, the verse completely the wrong way and I don't think he can support it that way. And so it's good to be careful about and to understand and know what we believe so we can identify some of those things. Naivety isn't a good response to our different beliefs. Another way we respond is with passivity. And that is to say, I just don't wanna get involved. I would rather ignore this than have to have a deep conversation. It's not that I don't know anything about it. It's not that I'm naive. It's just I don't want to do anything about it. And there are some good reasons sometimes to stay out of those conversations. So I'm not saying you should always be that guy that jumps in and wants to talk about every controversial issue. But just consider this. Many times we could actually be a peacemaker for other people who are in conflict over an issue. Many times we could come in as a neutral party and it's really helpful for us to actually be willing to step in and do that. Or maybe we see a potential concern for another follower of Jesus Christ, something that maybe it's a gray area and in your passivity, you just don't want to mess with it. This is, this is rampant in churches where we see a warning sign, a red flag in someone else's life, but because we're not quite sure what they believe about that and it might just be a gray area and we don't really know, we just don't talk about it. And I think there needs to be a whole lot more transparent conversation in the church where we are talking with each other and just transparently and humbly saying, you know what, I'm not really sure what you believe about this, but it just kind of looks to me in my perception like this might be a, a problem area for you. And maybe they come back and say, you know what, actually we've wrestled through this and this is where we landed on it and so this is totally fine for us and we're convinced of that. But maybe, just maybe, there are some sin issues or some habitual problems, some issues that have become sin. And that we can step into and help look after each other in the body of Christ. Another way we respond is is with anxiety. That's when we say, I just don't want to think about it. It scares me. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It makes me anxious. I don't want to deal with what that difficulty is. I know there are a lot of people that that is their response to different divisions. I'm just going to ignore it because it makes me feel uncomfortable to wrestle through things like same-sex marriage. It makes me uncomfortable to try to wrestle through, is it really a sin to smoke marijuana? There's so, so many layers there, so many things to think through. And I'm not saying you have to become an expert on all of these things, but I'm saying that anxiety is not a good response to different beliefs. People that get anxious about these different beliefs are kind of like that dinosaur on Toy Story. You, ever, you guys watch Toy Story? And Rex, the dinosaur, you know, he's got the tiny little arms and he's in the middle of an argument and he goes, well, nah, uh, I don't like confrontations. And that's how a lot of us are sometimes. We're just, we just recoil from those conversations where we're like, oh, there's disagreement there. But anxiety isn't a good response. Then there's animosity. I don't like anyone who disagrees with me. And if you and I don't agree on something, then when we get together, you better be sure there's going to be some arguing going on. Anybody have a family member like that? Don't point. Just, it's out there. Or, or, because we disagree, I'm going to ignore you out of spite. Spite. Because you and I don't agree on this random issue over here. And so now we don't like each other anymore. And we're not going to talk to each other. Obviously, animosity isn't a good response to division. So what is? How are we to respond to division and differences of belief, especially as believers? Go back to verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1.10. At the end of the verse, Paul says, rather be of one mind united in thought and purpose. The right response to division, to differences of belief is not naivety, passivity, anxiety, animosity. It is unity. This is how Paul wants us to deal with these divisions. And the word that he uses for divisions and be of one mind or being united, those words are really interesting. The word for divisions is actually the word for a tear or a rip in fabric or a net. So when fishing nets would be ripped, they would say that it was torn like this, that division. That's what that word means. And it started to become used in common speech. It was used in political circles when you had politicians who would divide from each other. I know that's hard to believe, but you'd have politicians that would be against each other and work and fight against each other and they would tweet nasty things at each other back 2,000 years ago. And, and what would happen is they would say that the, there was a rip in the fabric. They were torn, they were divided. And this is what Paul's talking about in the church. And then the word for be of one mind is actually a word that's used of James and John when they were in their boats, their fishing boats, they had their nets, they were ripped apart, and they were mending the nets. That's the word for be of one mind, for be united. That's that word, mending the nets. And so when these politicians would disagree with each other, and then they would come back together and they'd find some kind of agreement, something that they could rally around, something maybe that they did agree on, it would be said that they were mending the nets. It's a really cool word picture for us. Because maybe there are some of us who have some torn nets. In our families... In our communities, with our church family, there may be some torn nets here and we need to mend those nets. So unity is not the absence of conflict. That's not what Paul's talking about. Unity is the mending of division, mending the nets. In every relationship, there's going to be conflict. There are going to be differences. The key to being united is not to all agree on the same thing is not to have no conflict. It's to make sure that we are taking care of the relationships that we have so that even though we have differences, we are mending those nets. We stay united together. And what Paul is telling these people is, I beg of you, my brothers and sisters, my family, in the name of our Lord, mend your broken relationships. He even uses five different words to describe unity here. He, he says, live in harmony, Let there be no divisions, be of one mind, united in thought, and united in purpose. Five different ways of saying, get on the same page. This is serious. This is important to Paul. And I want to be clear about what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that we should just have the appearance of unity. This is not just to sort of put on that face, that mask, that, oh yeah, we all get along, but underneath the surface, we still don't like each other. That's not what he's talking about. He goes way deeper than that. United in mind united in purpose. He could have stopped at live in harmony if it was just about appearances. No, this goes deeper than that, mind and purpose. This is internal. And Paul is not saying that we must agree on every issue. Further in this letter, Paul is going to write about some specific divisions, especially with regard to food and whether or not you should eat certain food sacrificed to idols. I've actually been offered food sacrificed to idols. I'll we'll probably talk about that later on in this series. Um, but it's an interesting thing. What do you do if you've been offered meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? Do you, do you eat it? Is that wrong to eat? I mean, we're not idol worshipers, so what do we do with that? And as Paul is talking with them, you should really take some time later today. We're not going to go into it. We won't have time. 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10. through 10. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Today, during the halftime show, you should pull that out and just read that instead. I just, I'll just give you the snapshot. The believers are dividing over the food. And Paul, interestingly enough, does not come in and say, all right, guys, knock it out. This group is right. Everybody switch to that side. He doesn't say that. Really interesting. He says, this group's okay. Okay this group's okay. And instead of it dealing with the issue itself, which he touches on a little, what he spends most of his time on is to focus on how do you treat each other even though you disagree. That's what he spends his time on. Not deciding which one's right and which one's wrong. He actually affirms both groups. And he does this multiple times in his letters. It's okay to have those differences. So he, rather than telling them to agree on the issue, he told them how to treat each other, how to agree on how they speak with each other, with that issue. So he's not saying we should just have the appearance of unity. He's not saying we should agree on every issue. He wants big picture unity. He wants harmony. And then look at verse 11 with me. First Corinthians 1:11. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. What was the problem? They were latching on to different leaders and forming different camps and actually starting to be against each other, divided into factions. And Paul's message to them is, this is not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to have these divisions in the church. This is not just about an appearance of unity thing. It's not about agreeing on everything, but we're not supposed to divide into factions and focus on these secondary issues. Basically, what Paul is saying when he brings it to a close here, was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. What he's saying is the, the focus here is Christ. There's a more important thing here. This trumps all those different disagreements that you have. So we always talk about this We want to agree on the essentials and have liberty and love in the non-essentials, but how do you decide what's essential and what's not? How do you decide what is something where we just say, you know what, we're not going to let that divide us, and then you come to a place where you say, actually, this is is a big deal. This is essential for us. When we all have these different essentials that we believe in and non-essentials that we believe in, what do you put in what bucket? How do we determine that? That's what we're going to talk about in this series. Go down to verse 17. I want to see what Paul prioritizes here. Verse 17, same chapter. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Since God in his wisdom, verse 21, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Go down to verse 30. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Go to the next chapter, chapter 2. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything else except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And I'm not going to have you turn there, but you can see it on the screens. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, Paul is talking here, I passed on to you what was most important. What was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. What is the most important thing to Paul? What's the most essential thing to Paul? It's Jesus Christ. It's the message of the gospel. He tells them not to divide. And then he says, look, here are the things that you should be focused on. It's all about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and the fact that he saved us and what God did through him in our lives. That's what we should be united around. That's what we should be focused on. The gospel. It's the most important thing in our life every day. Not just that time when you believed it and trusted Christ and were saved. The gospel is for every day. And we're going to talk about that more next week. We're going to have a whole Sunday where we focus in on the gospel. But we need to keep that in perspective. What's the most important thing? Now, I want to be clear here. I want to be clear that I'm not saying for a minute that we should compromise on our beliefs. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, that other beliefs aren't important and the gospel is the only thing that matters and everything else we should just let it go. Because no, there are lots of other important beliefs that we believe in, we need to hold to, and that's what this series is all about. We're going to explore those together. Here's what I'm saying. We need to prioritize our beliefs. We need to prioritize our beliefs. Some beliefs are more important than others. Some beliefs are worth dying for, and some are not. For instance, I believe with all my heart that Kidoba is the best burrito restaurant. I do. I do. Thank you for those of you who agree with me. Some of you may like another burrito place, and that's fine. I like free guacamole and queso. That's just the way I am. I believe with all my heart that toilet paper should roll away from the wall. That's just a deeply held belief that I have. I believe that the greatest football team in the country and the team that is going to win the big game today is I'm not going to go there. That'd be very foolish of me. See, those are beliefs that I have. They're not very important beliefs, admittedly. But those are beliefs that I have. And Jesus talked about prioritizing our beliefs. Paul talked about prioritizing our beliefs. You may have never heard this before, but I'm gonna share a couple of things with you. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is talking with people. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the, what? More important aspects of the law. You ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying, yes, this is still important, but this is way more important. He's assigning a scale here. He's saying these things are more important than these things. Both important. One is more important than the other. And we already mentioned uh, how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you what was most important. More important than those things you're dividing over. Not that they're unimportant, but this is more important. Prioritizing our beliefs is a very biblical thing to do. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to just teach you in the moments we have left a simple tool that is going to become a metric that we will use over the next several weeks as we talk about our different beliefs And theologians and pastors have been doing this for centuries. They all use different words. So I need to give you some important caveats in a minute. But I want to tell you what this tool is going to do for us. First of all, this tool is going to help us put all our beliefs into perspective. It's going to help us focus on what matters most. It's going to help us engage with people who have different beliefs from us. The categories we're going to talk about that we're going to put our beliefs into, these categories are based on scripture, but they're not inspired. So understand that. This is a tool to help us do what Paul and Jesus have told us to do. We're going to categorize our beliefs. Theologians, like I said, have been doing this for centuries. And as they've been doing this, they've been using different labels to apply to these different beliefs, essentials and non-essentials and and dogmas and convictions and beliefs and different things. Um, they, They come up with all sorts of different labels. Don't get too caught up on your preconception of whatever word we use as a label. We're going to define our terms for this model. And that's going to be important. Here's the model. It's called the buckets of belief. And if you wanna draw this in your notes uh, on the back of your program there, you can go ahead and draw four concentric circles if you wanna take this home with you. It's just four circles inside of each other and here are the labels that we're gonna put in them. Dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference. We'll unpack each of these a little bit today and then we'll go into more detail over the next few weeks. Dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference. Let me explain what I mean by each of these because we're gonna build on this from here on. In the preference bucket are personal opinions which are not supported by the Bible. Preferences are beliefs, okay? Because I believe Kidoba is the best burrito place. It's a belief that I have, not an important one, but it's a, a belief. And we actually have an example of a preference in scripture from Paul. Paul gave us one of his preferences. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse six, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Now, aren't you thankful that he specified this was a preference, not a command? I mean, some of you may not be thankful. I don't know. But I'm thankful that Paul did not make this a command. If he did, and all of us were supposed to remain single, and all of us followed the biblical principles about sexual immorality, we wouldn't be here. In fact, there was a group a long time ago, maybe they're still around, I don't know if they are, but called the Shakers, where they didn't believe that you were supposed to marry and procreate. They didn't last very long. That's just how that works. So I'm thankful that this was a preference. Then there's the conviction bucket. Convictions, as we're going to define them here, are personal beliefs based on godly principles, but not mandated for everyone. It might be something that the Lord has just kind of impressed upon your heart that you shouldn't do this thing because this leads to sin for you, or it is sin for you. That's a conviction. These are beliefs that you hold, probably that are traced back to scripture in some way, the Bible in some way, but you recognize that you can't expect those of other people. Romans 14 is where Paul talks about convictions. He has a couple of places, but this is a good one. Romans 14 verse 1 says, Accept other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. And what does Paul say next? Does he say, okay, the vegetarians are right, you guys should all join their camp? Or does he say the vegetarians are wacko, you guys should all be eating meat? No, look at the next verse, verse 3. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. So Paul acknowledges both groups. And instead of dealing with which one's right and which one's wrong, he talks about how we're supposed to treat each other despite those different beliefs. And there's an example of a conviction. In other words, if you believe that you should only eat meat, or no one believes I should only eat meat, right? Maybe some people do. If you believe you should only eat vegetables— you can't force that conviction on other people. If you believe that you should eat meat, you can't force that conviction on other people. That's kind of what he's saying here. This is an example of a conviction. Convictions are personal beliefs that God holds you accountable for. Paul goes on to say in Romans twenty-three or Romans fourteen twenty-three rather, he says that if you have doubts about something and yet you do it anyway, in other words, you think it might be sin but you're not sure, but you do it anyway, then to you it's sin. What is he saying? This isn't just a, a simple, clear-cut issue. This is a heart issue. It goes back somewhat to what John was talking about last week. This is a heart issue. And for some people, this thing will be a sin, he says, because they doubt about it, and yet they do it anyway, and yet they thought that it might be a sin. So they were willing to go ahead and commit something they thought might be a sin. So to them, it is sin. But if you're fully convinced, he says, then it's not a sin. It's a heart issue. Convictions are personal beliefs that God holds you accountable for, but you can't hold anyone else accountable for Because it's a personal conviction. And think about how powerful that is. Are there any personal convictions that you hold that you have been wrongly applying or trying to apply to other people? Are there any beliefs that really belong in the conviction bucket that you've been saying to other people or implying or passive-aggressively pushing, you should hold my conviction too? And that right there is a convicting thought. Or are there convictions that you have that you haven't been following, even though you believe this is a conviction God has for you. Maybe it's something that will become a sin issue for you. Maybe it's a a habit thing. Maybe it's an addiction thing. And you're convicted about that. Maybe it's not technically wrong. Maybe you've even been telling yourself, well, it's not technically wrong, so I can do it. And yet you know that God's been convicting you about that. Then for you to keep on doing it, Paul says that's sin. Then there's the doctrine bucket. In the doctrine bucket go beliefs that a church or group considers biblical truth and essential for unity and fellowship. Now, I know we have to be careful here because when you use a word like doctrine, a lot of people bring preconceived notions to that. When we read in Scripture the word doctrine, the actual original word, what it actually means is sound teaching. That's all it means. It means good teaching, good, solid teaching. That's what it means. There is no magical list in the Bible of all the doctrinal interpretations that we should believe. And so every church and every religious group has their own statement of faith or doctrinal statement, where we list based on the word of God, what we believe to be important doctrinal things. And these are important. These are important things. But the reality is we've all come up with different lists. There's an element of interpretation in all of that. We believe in our doctrine. We believe in our positions. These aren't just things in our statement of faith, by the way. These could be other things, other positions that the elders have taken on certain things and said, this is where we stand as a church. This is where we are at on this. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So at First Free Church... We practice something called believer's baptism. We don't baptize infants. And that's one of the positions that we hold. If someone were to come to us and say, would you please baptize our infant by sprinkling? We would say, I'm sorry, we don't do that here. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And that's not the point of this message. I'll give you a few in case you're curious. Uh, In the Bible, the examples of Christian baptism are only of believers, people who already believe in Jesus. In the Bible, the command to baptize is only given for believers, in the time of Jesus, baptism was already a common thing. You may not know this, but baptism was a normal part of Jewish life, ritual bathing in a mikvah. They're all over Israel, ancient mikvahs from the time of Christ. And, and we, it's well documented. What would happen is they would go down into the water and they would have to go fully under and every strand of hair would have to go under the water for them to be counted as baptized in this mikveh. That was just the understanding of what baptism was. The reason why John went to certain places to baptize people is because there was enough water there. To baptism. These are not infants that he's sprinkling. These are people who are saying, I believe in your message. In this case, it's I believe in John's message, and boop, and they get baptized in the water. Now, if you believe something different than that, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But this is our position as a church. In fact, the early church held this position. You go back to documents in the early church and you read about how baptism was performed on believers, not infants for a while. That came later. Baptism was performed on believers. In fact, in the old baptismals that we can find archaeologically, I've been in one of them where you walk down in this trough that was designed to fully immerse a person. In fact, there's writing from the early church that specifies if, as you're baptizing believers, you're in a a location where there's a drought, there's not enough water, then it's acceptable in that instance to pour to baptize them. Why? Because the normal method was to fully immerse a believer. That was just normal. Now, there's no verse in Scripture that says you always have to do baptism by immersion. But there's no example in Scripture that we can point to that says you should baptize your infants or that there's any kind of special spiritual impact there. In fact, in our baby dedication process, we specify this is not infant baptism. And if you believe differently, that's fine. But that's a position that we have at the church because if we don't have a position on that, it can cause all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems with different people who want to do different things. And so we just have that position. We believe that to be the true position. Now, there are other churches, great churches with believers in Jesus Christ who disagree with us. What do we do with that? If that's part of our doctrinal bucket, if that's what we're saying, we believe in this as a church and I believe it's true. I believe it's right. We're on the, we're on the same page on this as leadership. This is what we ought to be doing. And yet there's a church down the road that completely disagrees with that position. Are they still followers of Jesus? Are they still believers in Jesus Christ if they disagree with our doctrine? Yeah, how can that be? That's why we need a fourth bucket. And by adding a fourth bucket, please understand I am in no way minimizing the importance of the doctrine. That's important. But we need a fourth bucket to differentiate what makes you a believer. And that's called our dogma. Different people have different perceptions of the word dogma. So let me just give you a dictionary definition here. A principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. And incontrovertibly means obvious and provable. So an authority specifies that this is absolutely obvious and provable. This is the bare minimum. This is what you ought to believe. You have to believe to be a part of this group. And for us, that authority is the word of God, the Bible. So what does the Bible say is absolutely essential for us. Well, dogma here, just to define it, beliefs established by the Bible as incontrovertibly true and essential to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What is it that the Bible says is absolutely essential for us? What is it the Bible says is incontrovertibly true? This is obvious and provable. When you go throughout scripture, you can see this is what God is saying. If you wanna be my follower, this is what you have to believe. It's the gospel. It's what Paul said was most important. It's the gospel message. In 1 Corinthians 15, we saw how Paul said that's the most important thing. In 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to put this on the screens for you, Paul shares his ministry priorities with the church in Corinth. And he says this, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything, get this, I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. What is Paul saying here? He's saying he is willing to sacrifice his cultural preferences, his traditions, the things that he grew up with, his Jewishness, his Roman citizenship, all of these things, he's willing to sacrifice them and put them aside. Why? For the sake of the gospel. The gospel matters most. And he was willing to put all those things aside Because of the gospel. Not in any way trying to minimize our doctrine or our convictions or our preferences. And we're going to unpack those more in the coming weeks. But what matters most is the gospel. So here's my question for you today Are we putting some of our beliefs in the wrong buckets? Are you putting some of your beliefs? In the wrong buckets. This is where most church friction comes from. It's usually not the dogma or the doctrine, to be honest. It's usually people who have taken a preference and turned it into a doctrine, or people who've taken a conviction and turned it into dogma. The number one problem in churches who have conflict over belief is people who have wrongly prioritized their beliefs. And they take a belief that is non essential and they treat it like it's essential. So for the next few weeks, we will talk about each of these buckets dogma, doctrine, conviction, preference, talk about what goes in them, how we decide them, what we do with those things. And then we're going to have a couple of weeks of application where we talk about how do we interact with each other despite our differences. And we're going to talk about how do we interact with people who are not followers of God despite the differences of belief that we have with them. And if you don't mind, I'd like to do something a little weird here. Don't worry, it's not too weird. I would like to assign you some homework. Is that okay? So, today, after you finish reading 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 during the halftime show, you should pull out a piece of paper and draw those four circles, or draw four columns, or draw four buckets, or however you want to do it, and label them dogma, doctrine, conviction, preference. And I would just encourage you to do this, maybe with your family, your small group, a group of friends, whatever it is, your spouse. Start to put into those categories where you think your different beliefs fall. What do we believe about this issue? Is this a dogma? Is this the most important thing? Do you have to believe this to be saved? Is this doctrine? Is this something we believe the church ought to have a position on and that ought to be our official position? Is this a personal conviction that I believe and I, is important for me and, and that's absolutely something that God wants me to follow, but I can't force this on other people? Is this a preference, something that really doesn't even have its roots in God's word or a, a biblical principle? It's just something that I personally believe. Where do those different things go? The list that we talked about earlier, alcohol, music style, uh, divorce and remarriage, all these different things. Where do those different things go in those buckets? And I know you're going to need more information. I know you probably have a lot of questions to figure out where things go. That's okay. Think about that as a preliminary exercise and then come back for the next several weeks as we talk through each of those in more detail. I promise you it's going to lead to some really interesting conversations. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for how you have made us different and unique. And sometimes that causes us some challenges, but the truth is it makes us stronger It causes us to wrestle through what we believe. It causes us to rely on you. So thank you, God. And I pray that you would help us to be united with each other of one mind, even though we have these disagreements. I pray that you would help us to look after the interests of each other and serve each other and not allow some of these things to tear between us. And for those that have some tears in relationships with family, with friends, with other believers here in the church, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be bold and diligent in mending the nets in resolving those broken relationships so we can be united even though we have some differences. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.